Thanks for downloading show 106 of the C-Suite podcast, the fourth in our special series of episodes that we're recording in partnership with the European PR agency Taito and their own Without Borders podcast, where we are interviewing leaders of unicorn companies to find out about the key issues, pain points and challenges that startups face and how they can address them with a strategic approach to marketing and communications. My name is Russell Goldsmith, and as we continue to record the podcast during the coronavirus pandemic, uh, we are also using this opportunity to look at how the companies we are featuring are adapting to working through the current climate and their plans for when we are totally out of lockdown. Uh, my co-host for these unicorn interviews is Taito's founder, Brendan Craigie, and joining us both online for this episode from Tel Aviv, I'm thrilled to welcome Eric Stillman, CEO of Rapid, a company that has built the world's largest local payments network to power, as they describe, frictionless global commerce. Uh, so welcome to the show, Eric. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to chat to us. Uh, we should probably start by getting you to give us a quick overview of Rapid. Sure. First of all, thank you very much for having me on the show. Uh, and you know, Rapid is what we call a fintech as a service platform. So we're not a typical payments company. Uh, we're actually a company that uh, provides infrastructure uh, for uh, fintechs to build on top of us variety of financial related applications that might include payment collection. Uh, we have basically four product lines uh, that are all exposed as microservices APIs from our cloud platform. Rapid Collect, which is the ability to collect payments in more than 1,000 different payment methods. Rapid Disperse, which is the ability to disperse money in any way that somebody might want to get paid, not only in bank transfers, but also cash, uh, push to local wallets and etc. Rapid Wallet, which is actually our secret sauce. It's a type of a white label version of a PayPal that we allow basically other companies to issue wallets for consumers or businesses. And the latest addition to our product suite is Rapid Issuing, which is card issuing of Visa and MasterCard on top of our wallet. This entire platform took an approach that is similar to Amazon in the AWS services, which is basically a lot of different services that are exposed uh, as an API, completely global, distributed across more than 100 countries. And we allow other companies to come on top of us and build applications and basically provide better financial services to their consumers. Excellent. Well, we'll go into a bit more detail and, and, and how that's all come about and the, and the growth of the business in a sec. But I, I just want to go back a little bit because you previously founded and successfully grown and sold a business um, in IT Navigator, which was a couple of years before launching Rapid. So what were your expectations for your current company back in 2016 when you, when you founded it? So it's an excellent question. Uh, the company that uh, I, I founded and sold in 2013 was IT Navigator, which uh, was a cloud computing company. And it was actually a bootstrap startup that started in 2003. Uh, so in 2003, I actually started this company together with three other co-founders and we built this company, you know, completely from scratch with no external money, no other backers or investors uh, and I sold it after 10 very long years uh, to Avaya out of Santa Clara. And, you know, after selling this company, we were sure that we want to do another company because we wanted to take all the mistakes that we made in the previous company and actually fix them and do something differently, what we call the right way. Because when you are a first-time entrepreneur, you learn so many things in the process and you make so many mistakes, which is obvious. Uh, but these are such valuable mistakes that you cannot wait to do it again because you know what you can do differently. So when we started this company, we knew one thing, that if we're going to follow a path of not making the same mistakes, we're going to build a very big and significant company. 
And we actually, you know, our goal was to become a multi-billion dollar company. And I think that uh, we're on the right path to achieve it. We partially achieved it now, you know, with the last uh, financing round that we did, that we crossed the billion dollar mark. But the long-term vision is a much bigger company. Do you think, um, you know, that, that's that's a, a huge strength, obviously, in, in recognizing mistakes, you know, that you, you've made. Do you, do you see other founders, you know, trying to hide over those and, and therefore not not getting the successes? Yeah, first of all, yes. And I can tell you that the first thing that I ask people in job interviews is what, what mistakes they've done in the past that they're not going to do again in the future. Because it's very easy, you know, to hire people that were always successful. Oh, they've been amazing here and amazing there. But come on, that, that's not the reality, right? I want people that already made mistakes. So when they come and do something with me, it's not going to be the first time they're going to do it because they, they know exactly what type of turn they need to take when they get to the crossroad. And I think that, you know, people tend to hide the mistakes, but mistakes are super valuable. And actually a good company is a company that knows how to fix quickly mistakes, not, not to make mistakes because everybody makes them, but quickly fix, fix it very quickly. I think also just kind of building on that, I think just having that self-awareness is also a real quality, isn't it? In terms of, there are probably lots of people that say to you, they've never made any mistakes, but actually it's because they're not, you're not aware of them. Um, I thought the other thing that's kind of interesting about the point you made is that it seems to be saying that you think one of the, the big mistakes you made previously was not being ambitious enough and that actually maybe a lot of companies need to be more ambitious when they set out. Is that, is that kind of what you were saying? Yeah, so we had two mistakes that, that were very big that we made. Uh, one mistake is that we didn't want to take any external funding. We built a bootstrap startup company. We own 100% of it. Uh, but the reality is that uh, even a kid knows that 100% or 100 million and 50% of a billion, it's not the same. Uh, and if you don't take external money and VC money, it's very complicated to scale a company to a very large size. And we, we weren't mature enough to understand that sometimes investors might be a good thing. Again, the right match of investors and the right money. We also didn't understand the fact that you always need to hire people that are smarter than you. Uh, that, that is another typical mistake that you do because you're trying to hire people that will just do what you say. Uh, and later on, you understand that sometimes you make mistakes and there was nobody confronting you and telling you, you're wrong here, you're wrong there, let's do it differently. And that was another thing, you know, that it was clear for us at this time that we need to do differently. Well, I want to bring this back to Rapid, obviously. Um, but before we do that, I just, I just thought, actually, I, I should probably ask you how things are currently um, in Israel in terms of getting through lockdown and this whole situation. How are you doing over there? I would smile because you guys are in the UK and I'm in Israel. The beach is open. The restaurants are open. The coffee shops are open. Kids are back to school. And this is why I have a big smile on my face. Uh, so the, the situation here is extremely good. Uh, it has been, you know, dramatically better than most of the world. But at the current stage, we're almost 100% back to, to normal life. Brilliant. That's great. And um, when in kind of preparing for this um, chat with you, Eric, we kind of like we're just um, looking over some of the things you've been you've been saying and writing. And there's a great blog post that you published at the start of the year reflecting on some of the, the changes and the developments over the past year of the business. So, and I guess one of the things that really stood out is the fact that you've pivoted from being a, a B2C wallet provider into this much all-encompassing B2B FinTech as a service platform. Could you kind of maybe talk a little bit about when you made that decision and what prompted it? Sure, uh, so first of all, uh, 
you know, the original thing that we wanted to do after we sold IT Navigator and got into the mindset of we want to do a different company is we wanted like everybody in 2015, everybody wanted to be Uber, right? It was the thing. And going into a consumer facing thing was something that was very appealing, especially by the way, from an ego perspective, because we said, okay, we've already done B2B, you know, we've been successful, let's go do consumer, let's be Uber, uh, which was, by the way, a huge mistake because we don't understand anything in consumer-facing uh, uh, applications, but we understand extremely well businesses. Uh, and we decided to go and build a consumer-facing wallet, uh, even though we had no background in financial services and no background in consumer, very bad combination of things uh, to try and build a company with. And, you know, we started this consumer-facing wallet that was called CashDash. Uh, and, you know, because we didn't know anything about the space, we started to research, to build uh, the tech and to make the business relationship that are relevant. And suddenly, you know, after seven months into this process and investing several millions of dollars of our own pocket, we understood that in payments, there are no platforms. Every single company that wants to start something that is fintech related has to build everything from scratch. You build your own wallet ledger, you build the KYC integration to different providers, you need to get regulated and you need to get a license in every country that you operate in. You need to have a card acquirer, a bank, a bank account, bank transfer capabilities, sanction screening, AML compliance. And you know, we had an idea that was very cool, but we find ourselves 90% of our time spending our time and effort and money on doing things that are not related to the core idea. Just building infrastructure and only 10% of the time and money was left to actually to the core of the idea. And, you know, we looked around and, you know, we said it can't be, there are no platforms because we're a bunch of guys came from cloud computing and we looked at AWS, at Azure, at Twilio, for example, in unified communication. And we said, okay, there has to be a platform. No, there were no platforms at all. And, you know, when we looked at each other, we said, okay, it's time to pivot, right? Because if there are no platforms, we need to be the platform. And then we pivoted because we understood that, you know, we can build infrastructure. We give other companies the ability to build in one month what it could have taken us two or three years to build. And that's how we ended up with Rappi. Um, and then, and then one, I guess the other thing that kind of just jumps out is that you obviously see a world in which people are going to want more and more different ways to pay. You know, what, what's kind of driving that, you know, like, and, and do you think there's a ceiling on the amount of, you know, different types of ways that are going to be to pay? So, first of all, it's important to understand that the world of payments outside of uh, the UK, the US and Israel is not really card oriented, right? If you look at the ways that people pay, even in Europe, right, in the Netherlands, you have people paying with bank transfers with ideal, in Germany, you have so forth. Uh, in Latin America, it's a lot of cash. In Asia Pacific, it's a lot of wallets. Uh, in India, it's UPI, which is a real-time payment network. It was invented by the government. So the world is evolving. And, and what is happening is that basically uh, the brands are trying to become the payment methods. So pay with Apple, pay with Google, pay with Amazon, pay with whatever it is. And when the brands, they want to become the payment methods, the card schemes and the banks become irrelevant. They become infrastructure plays. And at the end of the day, almost every single big brand that we know have a payment inspiration to be a payment method. And that leads into a world of very large variety of payment methods. I can tell you that today in the world there are almost 2,000 different ways to pay. And Rapid supports today more than 1,086 different ways to pay. 
Uh, and the reality is that people are actually using all these different payment methods. And we think that over time, it's only going to continue and evolve because of the fact that almost everybody wants to become a payment method or a wallet one way or another, and it's not going to stop. Now, there is a battle now. Okay, Visa and MasterCard, they understand that people are not going to have plastic. So it means that they need to switch to infrastructure, maybe something that is an SDK that can run on a mobile phone and they will only provide, you know, the, the infrastructure behind the scenes. But clearly the world is going into mobile payments, which is rent control payment methods. All right, we're releasing this, this episode. It, you know, it happens to coincide with your UK launch as a full stack company. Can you tell us a little bit more about what this means for Rapid? Yeah, so, you know, Rapid has, like I said, four product lines. They collect, which is payment collection in variety of payment methods. They disperse, which is the ability to pay out money, uh, the wallet and the issuing of cards. Uh, and we define basically a, a set of 20 countries that we call strategic countries that we want all the, tw- the all these 20 countries to have full stack capabilities of all the four rapid products, which means that in the UK, for example, we want to be able to support card acquiring, cash collection with cash points, bank transfers with SEPA direct, with bucks with fast payments uh, as bank transfers, uh, being able to push money to cards, being able to push money to Skrill, Neteller wallets, and et cetera, and to issue cards of Visa and MasterCard, you know, in the UK. So this is a full stack of capabilities. So when somebody in the UK actually wants to build something, they have everything at Rapid. Like there is no reason why they need to go to a different provider in order to build something in the UK. And, you know, we, we achieved it and it's, you know, part of this new uh, press release that we're doing these days. Uh, but, you know, we have 19 other countries that we're already doing it. And it's super exciting because we are becoming actually, you know, the single API and the single provider for other fintechs to build on top of. Well, this series of interviews that I'm, I'm doing with Brendan is very much focusing around the journey to becoming a unicorn. So you, you kind of touched on this just a little bit um, earlier, but obviously in doing the research, 2019, you had a number of funding rounds. There was, in, in fact, it was, it was on, on that blog post um, that Brendan mentioned, there was $40 million Series B and $100 million Series C. And then I read in TechCrunch from December last year, further $20 million. And they quoted your valuation with funding at the time at 1.2 billion. So we talked about, you know, your expectation when you founded the business. How has that all changed the perception of the company now? So we always, you know, from day one, when we started this company, we didn't treat it as a startup company. And is this, you know, a company that is small that might become big. We always knew that it's going to be a big company because we knew that we know what we're doing because of our past experience. I think it, one of the reasons why at the beginning when we were fundraising our series, our seed round, a lot of investors were afraid of investing in Rapid because they thought that we are not focused because we're trying to build something that is way too big and we need to start smaller and et cetera. You know, and we didn't agree with this approach, which was a very good decision from our end because at the end of the day, that what allowed us to scale. I think that valuations, you know, are... Um, at the stage of this company are more important, you know, to the press uh, and to uh, recruitment of employees, but they are less affecting the day-to-day operation because if you're a 500 million company or a $2 billion company, from my perspective, you know, uh, it, it's very nice, but it's paper money, right? It's, it's, it's not real money. It's not liquidated and it's not a publicly traded company that you can actually stick to the valuation. Uh, there is a... 
some element of pressure because the investors that are putting money, you know, into a unicorn or into a multi-billion dollar company, they are expecting you to continue and grow at the same pace that you grew up until now, which causes a certain element of pressure. But the reality is that, uh, you know, before we did this round, we actually looked at the valuation and we thought if it's maybe it's too high, right? Or maybe it's too low, uh, especially because we knew that in the future we might need another round. And when you have the... You have experience, you understand that the next round that will come after this round is very important to understand the implications of the existing valuation. So we did an analysis to understand if the round that we're doing now might have negative impacts on us uh, raising money in the future if we will need, you know, and the analysis uh, was clear for us that the 1.2 billion uh, or whatever was published is, uh, is legit because we have the ability to continue to grow in the same pace over the next two, three years that will lead us to another... Uh, 2.53 billion valuation, which is at the end of the day, the top of an expectation that the market will have for a company like ourselves. I was just curious to know what your approach as a, as a leader and, and as a, a kind of as, as your leadership team has been to building awareness and differentiating yourself in the market with so many other companies out there, you know, with all, you know trying to get their names out there. What, what's been your, what's your philosophy and approach? So the philosophy at the end of the day comes with two things. First of all, the global play that we have. A lot of companies are very strong in a specific country or a specific region. And we're not trying to sell our capabilities as APAC specialist or LATAM specialist or UK specialist. We always come in and say, this is the global capabilities that we have. We are a global company. We have offices today, you know, in Singapore, in the UK, in the US, in Israel, in Sao Paulo, in Brazil, in Mexico City, in Taipei, in Taiwan. We give you global coverage that is real. It's not that we are connected to somebody that is connected to somebody, you know, and you have this chain of companies that somehow lead you all the way to the consumer. We are there, we are local, we understand the local markets and we provide you the local experience. This is one very big differentiator. The fact that we are not only a card acquirer is also a very big difference because being a card acquirer is very nice, but today's world, you know, companies are looking to much more than collecting a payment from the card. And I think the fact that we provide such a broad range of services of collection and disbursement and effects and issuing is really becoming appealing to a lot of businesses because most of the businesses today already don't need only payment collection. Either they have a marketplace structure where they need to collect funds and disburse funds. They need always to KYC or KYB somebody because they have already compliance implications on them if it is GDPR or something else. So the fact that they can actually come to one place that will handle everything for them is like going to Amazon and AWS and not thinking about the data center, the electricity, the air conditioner, right? That, is, that exists behind the scenes that run your servers. You don't think about it. And that's exactly the same experience that people get when they come to Rapid. They don't care about the regulator in Indonesia versus Mexico or the compliance in Malaysia. We take everything, we take the responsibility, you do your application, connect to our API, and we'll do the heavy lifting for you. Yeah, it comes across as very, your kind of ambition and your global um, setup comes across very clearly. Does that also come with challenges in the sense that, you know, like if you're an American, focused on purely on the American market, you could, you know, focus on, you could be communicating in one language, but the fact that you're kind of look addressing so many different regions of the world does that does that kind of add additional layers of challenge in terms of how you you know building your name and building awareness of your company 
Uh, yes, it leads to a lot of challenges, both internal and external. The internal challenges, of course, are in the communication between the different teams that we have in the company, right? It's a completely different culture between Israelis to European to Americans to Asians. A lot of times things get lost in translation. A lot of times I find myself as the United Nations of the company sticking in the middle trying to resolve uh, disputes that actually don't exist because it's only a, a word that was used in the wrong way in an email that somebody interpreted one way or another. So internally, there are a lot of challenges and you know, we're trying to educate people of how to communicate better with different people. And you know, the email in Mexico is not like the email in Singapore. It's not the same thing. Uh, externally, it also brings a lot of challenges that are marketing related because convincing and acquiring uh, customers in APAC versus Europe versus the US versus LATAM is a completely different story. The language is different, the requirements are different. So it really brings a lot of complexity. We're trying to bring you know, one strategy that is translated locally uh, in every single region that we operate in, but you know, it's, it's part of uh, a growing uh, global business uh, challenges. Just building on that, that kind of discussion there in terms of some of the challenges of, of, of like um, internally of managing a global team, you've experienced you know, incredibly rapid, um, to use a bit of a pun, uh, growth over the past um, year or so, you know, going from 30 employees to 200, and I'm not quite sure where you are today. 250. 250, <laughs> um, which is incredible. But you said that you thought when you get to 100 people, it was a turning point. What sort of, like, what sort of ways have you had to adapt and, and what, what lessons could you maybe pass on to other people? Oh, it's very simple. In the day that you go up the elevator and there is a guy or a girl that goes with you in the elevator and comes with him off, you don't know who they are, that's a turning point, right? And, and the difference is that you don't know everybody by name, you don't know their wife or husband, you don't know their kids, and you don't know what they're working on. Uh, and this is a day that is, uh, might be you know, a panic day for, for uh, a CEO or an entrepreneur because suddenly you have a feeling that you lost control because you don't know what these people do. Uh, and you don't know if you really need them, but apparently they're on your budget and you hire them. Uh, and I think that this is the day that uh, maturity kicks in. If you know what does it mean to build a company, and if you know what does it mean to delegate responsibility, and if you know how to manage things in a little bit bigger scale than... I walk the hallway, you know, and I know everybody. Uh, that, that is uh, super important. I think that above 50 becomes a challenge. Above 100, it, it is really, you know, dramatically different. You know, the difference between 50 and 100 is like 50 to 1,000. That's the difference, right? Uh, it's significantly different. Layers from a management perspective, a lot of people uh, that is very hard to track, different set of KPIs and OKRs that you need to manage on a company-wide perspective in order to understand who is actually good and who is actually not as good as you think. You know, when statistics starts to play, right? You don't know people, you don't know is the, she's nice, he's nice, or whatever it is. Performance, performance, and performance, and you know, the statistics starts to play, and this is how you measure people. And as, as the leader of the business then, how much are you involved in terms of the internal comms, both individually, but also to the whole team? And, and, and you know, how are you, how are you addressing that, let, let's uh, say? I may be different from a lot of other people, but I'm super involved. Uh, I still, you know, do code reviews to developers. I still go and check specs of product managers. And I still look at landing pages that the marketing uh, team is doing. 
I basically, you know, spend some of my time in the week of picking one department over another and trying to understand exactly what is going on and talking to people directly without talking to the manager, talks to the manager, just so I would make sure I really understand what is going on. It is similar to, uh, you know, in, in Israel, we always uh, compare everything to the military. So you have a big group of people that need to walk one direction. If you want them to turn to the other direction, if you will tell one person up until it will get to the last one, it will take a while. So it's very important to talk to everybody and to understand what is going on. So if the ship is going in the wrong direction, you can turn it very quickly. And it happens, you know, on a monthly basis, I might suddenly, you know, stumble into something that says, oh my God, why are we doing it? We shouldn't do that. Uh, and it needs to be stopped. So I, I, I'm super involved and I'm also involved uh, on, on, you know, on a monthly or twice a month at least on looking at performance uh, of specific teams. And if I see a team that is underperforming, I will drill down and, and look at the team members and talk to the manager and understand what is wrong. Maybe people are in the wrong position. Maybe we hired the wrong team or maybe we're trying to build something that we shouldn't build. And this is why the team is underperforming. And, and what about during this the current pandemic? I mean, you know, has coronavirus impacted in terms of how your internal comms has or, or, or how how you've had to you know work with with different teams you know because like you said before I mean Israel's in a very different situation to where we are in the UK at the moment so has it provided challenges that you've not had before as a CEO and how and if so how have you overcome them yeah it provide one big challenge so when we got into 2020 from a strategy perspective our strategy from a marketing and customer acquisition perspective was built 70 percent in the traditional B2B uh, sales process and marketing, which means conferences, events, face-to-face -face meetings, you know, all this knocking on the door type of relationships, and 30% was online. In March, we made the decision in the beginning of March, in the first week of March, immediately when COVID became a big thing in Italy, it was already clear, you know, it's rolling out to become global. We just changed completely the strategy and shifted to 90% or even 100% digital, which was a very big shift from everybody. The product had to change, the marketing changed, the sales approach had to change. We changed the roadmap of the product, added more capabilities that are self-service oriented and onboarding of merchants online without any human interaction. The marketing team had to build a completely different approach of acquiring customers uh, the sales team implemented new internal sales tools to communicate better uh, through online tools like LinkedIn and others. So it was it was really a massive uh, change to the story from a customer acquisition perspective that we had to do in three weeks. We started it in the beginning of March and we had to, you know, have a completely new strategy and actually start executing on it in the beginning of April. So it was a massive effort across the entire company. Uh, and everybody had to be synced, right? Because, you know, it's very complicated to sync so many departments. Uh, but yeah, uh, that, that, that was successful. But I think that COVID, uh, as COVID itself, only did good to us as a company. Uh, it made us more mature, more focused about what we want to do. And also it's good for online payments. You know, from an online payments perspective, it's clearly that COVID is going to become the growth. Like if you look at 9-11, 9-11 change the way that people did uh, disaster recovery. The big thing after 9-11 was disaster recovery, data centers, replication of data, distributing employees and etc. I think that COVID uh, did uh, to online commerce what 
9-11 did to disaster recovery. Basically, online commerce is the output uh, of COVID. And, and have you regularly sort of given this message as, in terms of like leadership to, to the rest of the team or is it just taken oh, on yeah. you know, as, as read with them? No, no, I was very clear. Or, you know, you can talk to people. I had a town hall in the middle of March and I told everybody, listen, this thing is going to be big. It's going to be last at least until September, October. Uh, it's going to be completely dusty. You're not going to see what is actually next to you because of all the debris that is going you know, around. Uh, we're not going to use it as an excuse. And I was very clear to people that in rapid, Corona is a type of a beer. It's not an excuse to anything, right? You want to drink beer, you can drink a Corona beer, but I don't want to hear anybody saying that he missed his KPIs because of Corona, because excuse me for the language, it is bullshit. The reality is it is an opportunity. And you know, I, I think that uh, my assumptions about how big it is and how long will it last up until now were accurate. I, I, I hope they wouldn't, but they are accurate. Uh, and, you know, we communicated every two weeks. We had a session with employees face-to-face, uh, -face, like on a video, right? But face-to-face -face on video. And we also had weekly updates that was running between the different offices. What is the status of Rapid in every single office? That's who brilliant. is in quarantine? Who is in the office? What is going on? Uh, and we actually ran an employee-wide survey just a week ago and we scored 4.8 out of 5 in communication. So that was a good thing. You know, scoring 4.8 out of 5 in 250 people, it's really a good score. Yeah. But do, do you have to strike a balance between, obviously, like you said, it's an opportunity for the business, but externally, how, how do you have to get that balance between shouting too much that this is a growth opportunity for the business when obviously other companies and industries, you know, whole, whole sectors are, are, are struggling and obviously, that you know, there, there's worse situations with with health as well in, in terms of individuals? Uh, you know, I will be brutally honest. I'm getting paid by my shareholders to run a commercial company and not a non-profit organization. I need to maximize this thing to the best of my company and my shareholders. And this is why we did an acquisition also. We acquired the company, you know, just a couple of, it was a, couple, a month and a half ago in the middle of the COVID crisis. We found an opportunity, we executed on it. Uh, and we see it as purely an opportunity. You know, we have all the respect to the fact that there are health issues and stress issues and et cetera. But from a leadership perspective, we need to get the most out of it for the company itself and for the shareholders. And I think that we, this is exactly what we've done. You know, some people might say that we were a little bit too aggressive. But at the end of the day, if you look at history, the biggest companies emerge from things like that, right? From different types of crises. And from my perspective, it was a huge opportunity and we pressed the gas pedal all the way in to go as aggressive as we can. And, you know, uh, we tried not to insult or hurt anybody in that process. But if somebody got hurt, I apologize up front, it wasn't the intent, but we are a commercial company, not a non-organization. Yeah. And just, and just thinking about, you mentioned that you kind of quickly got a grasp on what this was looking like and, and how long it would go on. If you were to kind of take stock today and look looking forward, do you, what's your view of how this is going to change the world and business? You know, in the longer term, or do you think we'll no. just go back to normal? Normal doesn't exist so quickly because putting fear in the hand of in the head of people is something that you can do very quickly. Scaring them is easy. Getting it out of their head is the complicated thing. So, you know, from our perspective, what we see is that 
the growth of online commerce and the move to online commerce is going to speed up significantly. If people thought that the move from physical commerce to online commerce is going to be an average of 3%, 2% per year, it's going to be double the speed because people are going to adopt it. I think that every single business on planet Earth, it doesn't matter if it is a coffee shop, you know, a, a small mom and pop shop or a big store, everybody will have to have an online strategy. To have an online strategy, they will have to have at least 25 to 50% of their business done online. Otherwise, they won't exist. That's the reality. Yeah. And I think it's going to do very good for business and it's going to grow dramatically the shift. I think for travel industry, it's going to be something that will take at least three to five years to recover, mainly because of the fact that people will be scared to travel and the fact that the number of airlines and hotels are going to shrink dramatically after this uh, uh, situation. You know, travel is going to be much more expensive. Uh, it's very going to be very complicated to find an eight-pound ticket uh, to fly somewhere. Uh, and also the number of hotels that will exist, uh, unfortunately, is going to shrink. And Airbnb is not going to be as popular. So the travel industry itself has travel. It will take them three to five years uh, to recover. Uh, it's, it's not dramatically different world, but we skipped, I think, 10 years uh, ahead in the way that people do online business. Just on 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 that travel note, going back to the launch that you know you're, that's taking place, would you have normally been over here to do all your media interviews at, at that time? And ha, and has what's been the impact for that then? Of course, listen, we bought a company over a Zoom call. Okay, we did an acquisition without actually checking if there is a physical office and people actually exist and it's not a carton board. Okay, <laughs> so it's a completely different way of doing business. Uh, you know. 50% of my time was travel. I was traveling all the time. I think that from January to, to the 10th of March, uh, I traveled 80% of my time. I actually landed here from Brazil one day before the complete lockdown, right? So, uh, so have, you found your, have, you, have you become more efficient, do you think, with your time? Let's call it, it I don't know if it's more efficient. I became more, I, I have more uh, influence on what is going on in the product and R&D because they sit next to me and I don't travel. But I think on the sales side, there is a downside, right? Seeing customers, seeing local markets. There are markets, by the way, like Asia. It's very complicated to do business without a face-to-face -face meeting. It's like super complicated. So you lose this human touch, uh, which is challenging. So there is an upside and a downside for everything. Do you think this will go down as being like one of the, the biggest communications challenges you've faced along your journey or, or, or have you faced bigger communications challenges? No, that's the biggest communication challenge by far. I think that, you know, the, the, even bigger than not being able to travel, the fact that some of the employees that we have are quarantined in, you know, in a 100 square meter apartment with two kids that are, that are not going to school, it's creating a situation that it is impossible to work. You know, people talk about the fact they work from home but a lot of people, you know, it's bullshit, right? You cannot really work when you have two kids with you in the same house. They cannot go to school or to kindergarten. So the fact that you are trying to work, I respect it. But, you know, the communication starts there when there is screaming and yelling and it's very complicated to sing. And a conversation that might take one minute in the hallway takes two hours and you need to do it three times a week just to get something across the finish line. I think it's an unheard of communication challenge, right? The mm. biggest one ever. And I, I don't think also it's able, it's, nobody will be able to resolve it. With all due respect to the fact that tech tries all the time to resolve something, there is one thing that tech cannot resolve. And this is how much noise kids are doing at your house, right? It's like 
it is what it is. We need yeah. to deal with it. Yeah. And and so kind of reflecting on where you've got to so far in in your career, what would you say is probably your best piece of advice you, or you've ever ever got or you've got to give to other people on communication? On communication itself, uh, I think that the, the best advice that I can give people uh, on communication is first of all, uh, deal only with things that you actually understand in, right? If you're trying to do something and you go into a meeting and you're trying to try to do business that you do not understand, like, and when I say understand, I mean literally you understand it A to Z, not that you think it's a good idea. Trying to communicate about something that you don't understand and you know have clear understanding of how it works, it's, it's super challenging, especially when you don't have a whiteboard that you can sketch what you want. You know, the whiteboard saves so many challenges that people have and you know, without the whiteboard, the communication is super challenging. I think that also, the cultural difference in the way that people communicate is super challenging. And, uh, and I think that my advice is you need to understand the culture that you're talking to before you communicate. I can give you an amazing example from yesterday. I had three fireside chats with Americas, APAC, and EMEA yesterday, one after the other. I had to adopt a different personality before going on, on every, every single one of the calls. It's completely different talking you know, to these different cultures in the way that you show respect, humbleness, and uh, being uh, focused is different from these for, for, uh, for people. And before you talk, you need to understand the difference because I think the number one mistake that people do is that they think that if they know how to speak English well, they can communicate with anybody. And the fact that somebody on the other side speaks English doesn't mean he understands you. That's, there is a big difference. Eric. We really appreciate how candid you've been on, on this uh, chat and, and it's been absolutely brilliant. We've got one final question for you that, that we're asking all our unicorn leaders and it's kind of a bit, a bit similar to what, what Brendan's just asked you, but if you were to go back in time and speak to your old self, what guidance would you give about communications and what steps would you encourage yourself to take in order for you and the business to excel in communications? So the number one thing uh, that I would tell myself it's what always young people hear from older people and they don't listen. You need to listen to older people. Brilliant. <laughs> you know, you, you hear it when you're young and you say, oh, when you will grow up, you will understand. But the reality is when you will grow up, you will understand. First of all, when you're young, you are a very fast thinker, but you don't think all the way about the consequences, right? So listening more and, and observing more what people tell you, even if you don't agree, first of all, listen. Think for one day, drink a very big glass of cold water, and then make a decision, right? Because when you're young, you're just, oh, yeah, I know, I know. They're old, they're slow, they're this and that. So I would tell myself, I would first of all hit myself on the head and tell, listen to older people, even if you don't agree. That's the, the number one thing. Uh, and the second thing is respect everybody, right? My mother once told me, never talk about something in the elevator when, when you have foreign, you know, people with you in the elevator because you never know who is standing next to you. So before you talk, think who you're talking to. Tremendous. Eric, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join us on online today. And uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your day and good luck with the uh, with the launch. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Well, Brendan, uh, I, that, was, that was excellent. Our fourth interview with a unicorn leader uh, done. What are your thoughts from listening to what Eric had to say today? I mean, there's a lot of things in there to digest, but I think, um, you know, kicking off the, the kind of the points that he made about how they, they really learned from their first venture 
and you know then took that into their new business and specifically how they were much much more ambitious with what they were looking to accomplish with rapid than they were in their first venture i thought that was kind of really interesting and then just kind of seeing how he's uh, managed the situation with covid 19 and the speed and the sort of decisiveness of his communications approach internally that was also something that i think was quite striking and i can see it's not surprising really that they ended up getting such high scores for their internal communications because i think in times of crisis like this that's what you need you need decisive swift leadership and um yeah so really interesting both from a business perspective and also from like that internal communications perspective Yeah, perfect uh, summary, Brendan. Uh, Well, that's actually it for this fourth episode in this special series. Um, If you want to find out more about Rapid, uh, then very simply visit their website, which is rapid.net, R-A-P-Y-D.net. If you are a unicorn leader listening to this series and feel we should be interviewing you, uh, please do get in touch as we'd love to hear from you. Uh, We'd also welcome any comments on today's chat, which uh, you can do on our Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter feeds. And those are all linked from the top of our website at csuitepodcast.com, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via the likes of Spotify and Apple. And if you've liked what you've heard, please do give us a positive rating and review. We're also on all your favourite podcast apps. Just search for the C-Suite podcast and hit subscribe. And of course, you can also subscribe to the Without Borders podcast from our partners at Taito. And all the details for that are on their website. Just head to taitopr.com and click on the podcast link in the top navbar. Uh, finally, if you'd like to get in touch with this show, you can do that via our contact form at csuitepodcast.com or you can reach me via Twitter using at Ross Goldsmith or find me on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.